were talking a little bit uh, in the last break that um, how Purim kind of comes into it, but why does it? Um, yeah. They're very different, um, but they do come together here a little bit, and Ray's going to tell us about it. And uh, I think it still keeps us in Revelation, too, because I think it's a very end-time kind of connection. Yeah. It does make it harder to pronounce, because in the Torah in Hebrew, Yom Kippur is written in the plural, so it's hard to say Yom Ha Kippurim. Oh, they so had yeah, the Im at the end. This is where yeah. you don't typically end up with more of a, a Kippurim than a Kippurim. So <laughs> there you go. So, anyways, but what that means is the Day of Atonement. It's plural. Why? First, it's written in plural because, as I mentioned, it's a corporate fast and rest. You don't repent for your own sins or bring a sacrifice for your own sins. Second, if you were to break the word Kippurim in two between the two P's, it would be Yom Kip. Purim. That's the other mm-hmm. reason it's plural. It has another meaning. It's a day like Purim. Kip is like. Purim is Purim and Yom is day. So Purim is the story of Queen Esther and her battle with the evil Haman who nearly destroys the entire Jewish race in Persia. But God turns it around and Esther and the Jews end up in charge and Haman ends up dead. So it's it's kind of a nice thing. Now, that, of course, works on so many levels with the Judgment Day of the Day of Atonement, right? So you want evil to lose. You want the devil to be destroyed and consumed and cast into the lake of fire. Yes. But Purim becomes a day of deliverance and salvation for all Jews everywhere. So, again, you're you're looking at the Jewish people, but also you're looking at, at Christians in this, obviously. Uh, likewise, the day Yeshua Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross at Passover is like Purim because through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile were forever delivered from our enemies, sin and the devil. Perm was also a picture of the end times. Now, it probably doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it anyways. Uh, when we talk about all Israel being saved, it doesn't mean that all Jewish people will be saved. Obviously, those who are rejecting Jesus will not be saved. Right. Those who have died and were rejecting him at the time will not be saved. But those alive will have an opportunity to come to him and to follow him and to obey. And the, the difference is, you know, we talk about it and, and uh, you know, without being harsh, there is a, well, we talk about being stuck and stupid and that's yeah. probably not the best equivalence in this because when your heart is hardened, it is a bit like you're stuck and stupid, but this is much more of a, a deeper problem. It's a depth of pride and arrogance that, and you can't get past knowing that you believe a falsehood. You know, it's all right to have an opinion, but it's not okay to have your own truth. And that's kind of the situation right now. So in that day, God's going to change hearts. And so where right now they're just some who just can't see for the life of them, they will be able to. God will make a, a mass revival like you, the world has never seen. So the scroll of Esther is definitely a foreshadowing of the great end time spiritual war, the final victory Jesus brings. Yes. Esther is filled with shadows and types that point to end time prophecies. Haman perfectly symbolizes the Antichrist. The closest word in biblical Hebrew for Antichrist is Sorer, which is translated as enemy. Haman is referred to as Sorer four times. Just like Haman tried to annihilate the Jews of Persia, the Antichrist will try to kill every Jew and Christian. Just as Haman wasn't satisfied to only punish Mordecai, but united all 127 nations of Persia in his evil plot, so the Antichrist will unite the nations to attack the people and nation of Israel. Esther, who played and trusted God with her life, is the interceding church. Mordecai, who is the first person called Jewish, would represent Jews who have discovered Jesus, Yeshua, as their Messiah. 
Uh, Esther chapter 9 sums up Purim as two days in which they would celebrate in every generation by every family in every province and all city as if they were relieved of their enemies all over again. And their lives were transformed from sorrow to joy and from mourning to festivity. There should be feasting, rejoicing, sending food portions one to another and giving gifts to the poor. Now, if it seems odd that when we talk about that, Yom Kippurim, the holiest day, is considered practically the same as Purim, well, you're not alone in that wonderment. Keep in mind, Yom Kippur, the one day when the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, goes through the veil, the curtain separates the holy places from the rest of the temple. The veil, of course, separation of God and man due to man's sin. And, of course, the veil represents Jesus, dies on the cross for sin, and which has been separating us from God. The veil, his body is torn. That's that's that. <laughs> then you have the actual physical aspects of the high priest covered in blood for making the sacrifice, goes in the Holy Holies, pours the blood on the mercy seat, that capareth that means purge, atone, relates back to Kipper. And then when you stop and think, all right, so there's like no more two more opposite days <laughs> in the Jewish calendar than Purim and that. On Yom Kippur, you dress in all white, you fast from food and drink and lots of other physical pleasures, and instead devote yourself to prayer and repentance in hopes that God will write your name in the book of life, rescue you from death. There's a few little things there, but Purim is celebrated loudly in costumes with noisemakers. There's feasting, drinking, giving money to the poor, sending food to a friend, all because God rescues people. So <laughs> Yom Kippurim is a day like Purim. Help me with that. Okay, so Purim is really all about atonement. Yeah. A day like Yom Kippur, Kippur, when God made a way for all Israel to be cleansed from a multitude of sin. Purim and Yom Kippur are days of deliverance and salvation. Both look back in history and both were told to celebrate as if we're actually there and it was happening to us. Purim may very well be the most significant, I think, part of it. Is a reminder about another end times event. Our wedding day to Jesus is yes. set. So as we pass through tribulations, we hold on to hope knowing that even though evil threatens, victory is guaranteed. It's coming. Purim takes place in Adar, the month of Adar, last month of the year. So prophetically speaking, whatever it represents must be the last thing that is to happen in history. There's always more than meets the eye when it comes to feasts and End time scriptures were often called the bride of Christ, and we're waiting for our groom, Jesus, to come and get us for the wedding supper in heaven, which is the Passover meal. And of course, there's this theme of white robes that runs through Revelation that points to our wedding. Mm -hmm. One of the themes of the scroll of Esther is the wearing of royal clothes. It's a lot about clothes in this book. Esther wears them to go before the king, described as being arrayed in beauty. When the king wants to show honor to the person who saved his life, Haman, thinking the king is speaking to him, hatches this fantastical tribute that would enable him to wear the king's robes. After the king appoints Mordecai, the prime minister, he appears in royal garments. So you got a lot of imagery here that really goes with the revelation. In Christ, we've been clothed with Christ, and his royalty and anointing has become ours. <laughs> now, if you jump into Revelation 19... Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Sounds a little bit like Esther. Fine linen, bright and clean, given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. Again, you have this sense of Esther and Mordecai and the people. 
With justice, he judges and wages war. So that's kind of a Purim thing. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses. That's us. And dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. If you remember the story of Purim, one of the things they did is they enabled themselves to be able to take up swords and fight against whoever tried to hurt them. So this is very Purimish. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So, is it like Purim? Well, yeah, there's a very odd marriage there of Purim and Yom Kippur. But yeah, there's some very good connectivity there. Okay, coming up, we're going to unpack Revelation Judgment Day. We're going to wrap it all up. The Day of Atonement. You're going to unpack all of Revelation? All no, right. just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs>